0: Revelation chapter 3 verses 1 to 6 New Living Translation Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive but you are dead Wake up, strengthen what little remains For even what is left is almost dead I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God Go back to what you heard and believed at first Hold to it firmly, repent and turn to me again If you don't wake up, I will come to you as uh, Unexpected as a thief Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their name from the book book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches well you see
1: from our reading we're uh, in revelation chapter 3 and uh, we're looking at the message to the church in sardis Uh, it is unique in that there are no words of affirmation uh, only words of rebuke It's also the shortest message of the seven. uh, With only the briefest of introductions, Jesus gets straight to the point, no messing about. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Jesus begins all of these messages with the words, I know. He is not deceived by their outward appearance. He knows the true condition of their hearts. He knows the extent of their compromises and the limits of their allegiance to him. In 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7, we learn an important distinction between God and humans, namely that people judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the truth of that is made clear in Sardis. To the outside world, they look alive, but Jesus knows that they are dead. Well, at least they are at the point of death. His command to them to strengthen what remains suggests, in fact, that they're not quite dead yet, but that they are on the brink. It is thought that Sardis may have been the largest congregation of the seven churches. Uh, Estimates of the city's population at that time uh, ranged from about 60 to 100,000. And the church was certainly large enough that it had a reputation in the region. Yet they were on the brink of collapse, according to Jesus. They were near death. So what was it that had gone so horribly wrong? What was it about this congregation in this particular city that warranted such a damning assessment from Jesus. Well, the mystery of the near death of the church in Sardis is a classic case of the dog that didn't bark in the night. You see, sometimes in order to solve a puzzle, you have to look for what is not there. Just as the church had a reputation for being alive, so too the city of Sardis had a reputation as a great city. It was the oldest of the seven and had been ruled at various times by the Greeks, the Persians, uh, the Romans on into the Byzantine era. By the end of the first century, Sardis also had a sizable Jewish community and archaeological excavations have uncovered what is thought to be one of the largest synagogues of the Western Diaspora in antiquity. In all its long history, it was one of the most important cities of Asia Minor, partly due to its great location at the intersection of roads through the region. In fact, after the Persian king Cyrus the Great defeated Croesus, king of Sardis in 546 BC, the Persian royal road went all the way from their ancient capital of Persepolis all the way to Sardis where it ended. The city was also famous for the fact that the region was literally a gold mine. In fact, a river carrying gold dust Uh, from the mountains ran right through the city, helping to make it fabulously wealthy. However, its great wealth was more due to the fact that it was in Sardis that the technique of separating gold and silver was discovered. Gold nuggets had been used as currency for centuries, But because they were a mixture of gold and silver, their purity was always suspect. You could never be sure how much of it was gold and how much of it was silver. And so their discovery enabled the city to produce gold and silver of a purity previously unknown. And it caused a revolution in global finance. Sardis was able to mint gold coins of almost pure gold or pure silver, the value of which could be trusted throughout the known world. It was effectively where modern currency was invented. Hence the phrase, as rich as Croesus, became a generic term for someone who was fabulously wealthy. He was the Jeff Bezos of his day. And so, Sardis was a city with a long and important history that had been shaped by Greek, Persian, Jewish and Roman philosophy, religion and worldviews. And all of that helped to form and shape the cultural, social, political, religious and economic background in which the Church of Jesus Christ lived and breathed. The church in Sardis then was in no different a situation from any other of the churches in the region. It was born in a pagan culture with a decidedly pagan worldview. People lived pagan lifestyles. The trade guilds and their feasts involving idol worship and sexual immorality were as common in Sardis as they were in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum or Thyatira. Emperor worship, backed by the coercive power of the Roman military might, was part of the fabric of everyday life. Symbols of Roman power and authority were everywhere. And so the Christians in Sardis would have experienced exactly the same kind of pressures, the same persecutions, the same financial losses, the same social dislocation as the Christians in those other cities. Except, they didn't. Jesus never mentions any suffering or persecution. He doesn't say anything about their patient endurance or of their bearing up under trials as he does to the other churches. Now, the lack of any comment about suffering for the sake of Jesus' name and his criticism of their reputation for being alive was undeserved, suggests that they were not in fact being persecuted or suffering hardship. For Jesus' name. As Keener notes, this may have simply been because they had coexisted peacefully with the synagogue community and the civic establishment as a whole. If that's indeed the case, it's likely, given Jesus' rebuke, that they had grown complacent and comfortable in their relationship with the pagan world around them. The fact is that they were so comfortable with the world that Satan didn't need to put any pressure on them. They were already on the brink of spiritual death and they had managed to do that all by themselves. Jesus says that their actions didn't meet God's requirements. Other translations say their works were unfinished or not perfect or not complete. And the Greek word that's used here carries all of those meanings. It seems very likely, therefore, that they were no longer active in the church's mission of declaring the lordship of Jesus, either vocally or in their actions in the way that they lived day by day. It's possible they'd already heard of the severe persecutions that the Christians in other cities had been experiencing. I mean, after all, John had heard of it in Patmos. They didn't want to go through those same troubles. As Beale puts it, the Sardinian Christians feared that if they maintained too high a Christian profile in the city, they would encounter persecution of various sorts. And to be honest, they were getting along just fine with everyone. It was, in a sense, the logical outcome of the teaching that was beginning to gain ground in the church in Thyatira they had what they, they thought that they had the best of both worlds and so one compromise led to another as it always does. First you begin to tone down the message a bit to make it more palatable. And then you, you go to just one trade guild feast and that leads to going to another and another. And so on until the lines between being in the world but not of it become so blurred as to be indistinguishable. In Romans 12, Paul warns us not to let the world squeeze us into its mould. But that seems to be exactly what had happened here. Whether for the sake of avoiding persecution or for the sake of social acceptance, the Sardinians were being squeezed into the world's mould to the point that their distinctive allegiance and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ was no longer evident. They had embarked on a course of compromise, probably because it was the easiest route to being accepted by the wider society. The message to the churches in Revelation, however, is that the risk of compromise with the world is far more damaging to us than the risks of persecution. As Richard Hayes notes, the overall message of the seven letters is a call for sharper boundaries between the church and the world. For the Sardinians, those boundaries had become so blurred that they just were almost gone. Social commentators Uh, today often note that FOMO is a major factor in shaping behaviour in 21st century Western societies. FOMO is the fear of missing out. We desperately want to belong, to be insiders rather than outsiders. How easily we forget that our primary belonging is to Jesus and to his kingdom, that in this world We are, in the words of one theologian, resident aliens. Mitchell Reddish makes the important observation that measured by the standards of the prevailing culture, the church in Sardis was vibrant. Measured by the standards of Christ, however, the church was for all practical purposes dead. Any church ancient or modern, that gauges its health only by the measures of society, popularity, membership size, financial resources, social prestige and acceptance. Any church that uses those measures and only those measures is in danger of mistaking sick religion for vital faith. We should note that the complacency uh, that they were were, uh, clearly engaged in uh, leads to disaster. For Jesus says he will come to them like a thief. On one level that simply means he'll come suddenly and unexpectedly and implication is imminently. But in John 10 and 10 Jesus says that the thief's purpose is to kill and destroy. And so we can't really ignore just that note of judgment in what he says. Jesus' message to the church in Sardis is one that the church needs to hear today. And so in five imperatives, Jesus calls them to a radical course correction. The first two imperatives are linked together as a pair. Uh, So the Sardinian Christians are called to wake up and strengthen what remains This call to wake up appears twice in this message. The word can also mean to be alert. And the phrase would have had particular significance for the Sardinians. The city was built on a mountain with sheer walls. It was impregnable and in fact it was never conquered by direct military assault. But it was captured twice in history because of a lack of vigilance because the people were not alert. Those who should have been guarding the city were not alert. When Cyrus the Great attacked the city, his forces noticed, noticed the enemy using a trapdoor under the unguarded walls. And then, so in the night, when everyone was asleep, his troops used it to enter the city and open the gates. Then, about 300 years later, Antiochus III, having read Cyrus's account of his own victory, did exactly the same. It was the Sardinians' lack of wakefulness, failure to learn from the past mistakes, that led to their capture. It's not immediately clear what uh, Jesus means by the phrase, what remains but it seems that although they had become complacent, they had not totally forsaken their allegiance to Jesus. There was something there, and they were to strengthen that. The Sardinians' relationship with God had been weakened by their complacent friendship with the world, and so Jesus called them to go back to what they had heard and believed at first. They had to remember what Johnson calls the essential reality of the Christian life, namely that we are now the temple of God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He is, as Paul writes, the Spirit of life, Romans 8 and 2. Isn't that exactly what a dying church needs? It is the Spirit of God who breathed onto the dry bones to bring them to life in Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 37. It's likely, therefore, that They were observing all the rituals of their services, but that the life of the Spirit with all its vitality was missing. They were just going through the motions. Being called to remember what they heard and believed at first would highlight the difference with their life and witness now from what it was at the beginning. A difference that they could no longer perceive. And furthermore, as fee notes, the call to remember does not mean simply to recall the past, but to act on it. The act of remembering is an important step in helping recover and maintain present faithfulness. And it is something the Bible repeatedly calls God's people to do. So it's not surprising that Jesus then calls them to hold firmly to this vital relationship with the Spirit. Elsewhere in the New Testament, believers are exhorted not to grieve the Spirit, not to quench the Spirit, but rather to keep on being filled with the Spirit. The final imperative to repent is oddly placed. We would normally expect repentance to be the first thing that we should do. But in order to repent, we have to be made aware of our need to repent repentance is always a deliberate act of the will no one repents by accident it's a clear choice to change and so the call to repent is not merely a call to have a change of mind because that's what the word really means it's not merely a good intention rather it's always a call to act having changed your mind to set your path in a different direction Unfortunately, some in Sardis have not given in to the complacency and compromise that characterised the church as a whole. The fact that they have not soiled their clothes and well, what with Jesus dressed in white is significant. In the ancient world, and still today in some places, you could not approach a deity in a temple wearing soiled clothes. It was normal to wear white linen. Jesus is promising here that those who have not become polluted by compromise will indeed enter into the presence of God in the new creation. The promise that those who overcome will not have their name blotted out of the book of life. Well, that clearly implies that those who do not overcome will have their names blotted out. Now, the question of whether or not you can lose your salvation is a complicated one that, fortunately, I don't have time to address today. However, there are two main views. There's the Arminian uh, and the Calvinist view. The Arminian view is basically that falling away from allegiance to Jesus can reverse the results of salvation. So you can lose your salvation. The Calvinist view is basically that anyone who abandons their allegiance to Jesus was never really saved to begin with. Now, the somewhat obvious point that's often missed in debates about this is that despite these opposing viewpoints, despite their differences, both of these viewpoints agree on the end result namely that those who do not persevere are lost and so we're left with a really really important question if you are a christian are you are your church to use keith green's phrase asleep in the light are you needing to wake up and strengthen what remains i make no apology for repeating Jesus' call to repent because your salvation depends on it. Thanks for listening to this week's signpost and may God bless you in the week ahead.